Thanks for joining us uh, for our live service, especially if, if you're joining us for the first time today. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, you might find it interesting uh, to be watching a church service from YouTube. Uh, but what you're experiencing today is really the things that we normally do in our Sunday service when we met in person. Uh, so if you're new to church, I'm actually curious to know if in any way, if this experience matches your idea of church, because we all have an idea about church. We all have an idea about what church is and perhaps how it should function. The question is, is your idea about church and my idea about church the same as the Bible's idea about church? Because there's basic two ways to come at answering that question on what church is and how it should function. On the one hand, we could take the skeptic's point of view. We could say, hey, look, the church is entirely a man-made institution. It's just nothing more than institutional religion at its best. There's nothing divine, supernatural about the church. It's just a bunch of people who share similar convictions getting together to socialize. Perhaps for some of you, that is the starting point. There's nothing divine, nothing supernatural about the church. On the other hand, when we read the Bible, we get a view of church that is much more than a human institution. It's the body of Christ, the scripture says. It's the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. It's the people with whom God's glory is displayed to the world. The Bible says the church, this highly flawed community made up of very average people, is God's divine strategy to bless the world. And so if you're curious to know what's so special about the church, then today we're going to get to see the Bible's view of church from today's passage, Acts chapter 20. And what we'll see in this passage about the church is potentially, I believe, life-changing. Acts chapter 20 has the potential to change the way you understand the church and thereby powerfully change forever the way that you will engage with the church. And that's why I'm excited about preaching this passage today. Because I don't know about you, I have no interest in being part of a Christian social club. If that's speaking to your mind, then look, I'm totally with you on that. If church is just a social game, I don't want to play. But if it's true that God is up to something beautiful, something meaningful, something purposeful in and through the church, then I want in on that. And I hope you do too. In the story of Acts so far, the Apostle Paul has been gone through three missionary journeys to plant churches across the Mediterranean. Now he's revisiting these churches, retracing his steps to make sure that these new churches are healthy and they're vibrant. And so here's what we're going to see, three things. We're going to see the schedule of the church, we're going to see the structure of the church, and we're going to see the strength of the church. So starting with the schedule of the church, we're actually going to go back to a few verses before the Bible reading, starting at verse 7. So if you have your Bible in front of you or your Bible app, you can turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 
we'll also have these verses on the screen. So starting from verse 7, we read, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept talking until midnight. Now, the verse that we just read is massively important. This is the first definitive reference we have in history to the church gathering on a Sunday, the first day of the week. Remember, in Jewish culture, the Jewish people gathered on a Saturday, the seventh day, the last day of the week. So for thousands of years, the Jewish people have been resting and worshiping God on a Saturday. So why did the Christians decide to worship on Sunday? Who were inheriting the legacy of the Jewish faith, by the way, why did these Christians worship on a Sunday? The reasons why Christians worship on a Sunday is because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. Resurrection Sunday was a reorientating event for the early church. They understood that in Jesus' resurrection, a new age has come. God's kingdom is being realized, and they changed the day they considered to be sacred. And so Luke tells on the first day of the week, the church came together to break bread. And it's not talking about eating. It's talking about the Lord's Supper, the liturgical breaking of bread in remembrance of Christ's death. And the gathering of the breaking of bread didn't just involve communion. It would have included prayer, singing, and Bible teaching, which is why it says Paul spoke to the people because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is a really long church service going up to 12 in midnight. But here's what you need to understand about the historical setting of this passage. We need to understand that their church service didn't start until 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. at night. Listen to Adolf Adam, a German theologian. In the first three centuries of Christianity, there has never been any mention of abstention from work on Sunday. In the world of that time, Sunday was a day of work like any other. Thus, Christians were forced to hold their Sunday liturgy in the late evening, which meant a good deal of inconvenience and self-discipline. That's why we go on to read about a guy called Eutychus, who's falling asleep in the church service. Verse 9, seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his armor around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Now, I actually think that the church has misunderstood Eutychus. You perhaps might have taught, been taught that Eutychus, he's a slacker in church, someone who's disengaged, not paying attention in church. He's an example of someone who we shouldn't be like in church as someone who is condemned and judged by God by falling out of the window, falling three stories to his death. But if you understood the historical context of their Sunday church service, we can empathetically understand why Eutychus was tired. For Eutychus, Sunday is the equivalent of our Monday. He's worked all day. It's now midnight. 
poor sermon is going a little bit long. And of course, he's falling asleep. And unfortunately, he falls out of the window. Look, can we agree that this is a little bit of a distraction to the sermon? I mean, this is worse than a mobile phone going off during the sermon. If someone dies during a sermon, hey, we're calling time out. Um, And so Paul calls time out and he goes down and by the grace of God works a miracle and brings this young man back to life. And it's this incredible story about resurrecting this guy then he comes back, is that they keep on meeting for a long while until daybreak. They just keep having church. Can you see that Luke is portraying Eutychus not as a villain, not as a slacker in church, but as a kind of a hero, as a committed follower of Jesus who took a great deal of inconvenience and self-discipline to gather with believers on Sunday to fellowship, to break bread, and to follow the apostles' teaching from the Scriptures. The moral of the story is not don't be like sleepy slacker Eutychus. The moral of the story is be like Eutychus and the early disciples who were committed to the schedule of the church, to meet together for Sunday worship. That despite having Monday-itis, which for them would have been Sunday-itis, For them, they were still devoted to gathering on Sundays. Think of Eutychus as a kind of like an Aussie everyday hero. He's your average Joe Blow. He works hard at his job and he makes an effort to come to church. Look, he's probably not that intellectual. So some of the things that Paul says in his sermon goes over his head. But the main thing is that he rocks up to church. And in a very Australian, humorous way, the poor bloke falls asleep and falls out of the building. Paul rushes down, brings him back to life, and Paul's like, mate, look, I know it's getting late. It's midnight. Uh, Maybe we should just call it a night. Maybe we should just go out for midnight kebabs and take a break. Eutychus is like, no, Paul, I want you to finish the sermon. I want to learn more about Jesus. I know, look, this whole thing's pretty embarrassing, but let's just finish the service. Let's keep on worshipping Jesus. And so they keep on having the church service. And I think that is so incredible. That is so encouraging. Personally, I consider Eutychus to be the hero of the faith. Maybe not like a hero like Paul or Moses, but your everyday Aussie hero who is a faithful and committed follower of Jesus. And so actually Eutychus rebukes us, doesn't he? When for us Sunday is a weekend where we don't have to work. And the reason why Sunday is a weekend is directly because of Jesus, because of Christianity reorientating Sunday to be a sacred day. So the question for you and me living when we do and where we do, here's the question that we need to confront. How do you view Sunday? Is it the Lord's day or is it my day? Is it set apart for the worship of God or is it just the second day of your weekend? Are you relentlessly committed to gathering with the church for worship, even with a good deal of inconvenience, 
and a lot of self-discipline? Or can a little tiredness keep you away? If the church is just a human institution, then look, I'm not going to bend over backwards to be present. But if it's true that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is pouring out his grace on the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the word of the scriptures, then how could that not be the most sacred, the most important day of our week? So how does this passage apply to us in our time of COVID? On the one hand, the call and exhortation to meet on a Sunday doesn't override the command to love our neighbour. It doesn't override our need to obey the government who is seeking to protect the health and safety of our local communities. So as a church, we do follow the government's legislations and advice as a way to love our neighbours. But on the other hand, we need to confront our cunningness of our sinful hearts to use the guise of health and safety as a way to excuse our selfishness, our laziness, and any other sinful motives in not making the effort to meet and fellowship in church. Look, everyone's work week because of COVID has been thrown out of whack. So it will require a new set of new self-disciplines during the week to enable you to have the energy, to have the headspace, the well-being, to be able to gather with other Christians on Sundays. To practice COVID safety, we will be confronted with a whole set of new inconveniences to come to church gatherings. This passage, I believe, is empathetic to people's demanding work weeks. It's empathetic to Eutychus. It's also empathetic to the cultural inconveniences of the church. They wanted to meet on, on Sunday, which is the, a work day. It's empathetic to that. But do you see that these things didn't stop the early disciples to come together to worship on a Sunday? They took the posture of self-discipline and accepted the inconveniences to be devoted in meeting on Sunday. Because if it's true that the risen Lord Jesus Christ is pouring out his grace on our fellowship, on our breaking of bread, and on our coming under the word of Scripture, then how could Sunday not be the most sacred day, the most important day of our week? After the church service, Paul sets sail, and we get a bit of a travel log. And from verse 17, Paul and his companions land in Miletus. And that brings us to the second point the structure of the church. So read with me from verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to the Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. Notice what we learn. We learn something simple, something as a matter of fact, that a biblically organized church is led by elders. Paul knew who the elders were, The elders knew who they were, and the church knew who the elders were. In such a way that Paul calls for the elders to come here, they knew who they were, and they would come to meet Paul in Miletus. This passage, which is important to understand the local church, goes on to reveal three things about who elders are and three things about what elders do. So let's briefly get a sense of what these things are. 
Elders are first of all mature disciples of Jesus. The text goes on to show how Paul is giving a speech to these elders. And he says in verse 20, I know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. Paul is saying that these elders have been personally discipled and invested in by the Apostle Paul. Paul, over a period of time, which the text goes on to say, which was about three years, that these are not brand new Christians. These are not unformed Christians. These are mature Christians. Second, elders are called into service by the Holy Spirit. Look with me at verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So biblically, elders don't become elders because they're popular. They're not elders because they have a big and loud and personality. Elders are called into the leadership of the church by the Holy Spirit. There is a spiritual dynamic as the Holy Spirit draws people into the office of elders. So elders are mature Christians. Elders are called into service by the Holy Spirit. And finally, elders are in the flock and over the flock. Notice in verse 28, keep watch over yourself and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseas. There is a of and over. Elders are of the flock and at the same time, they are over the flock. Elders are part of the flock. They are sheep in need of the great shepherd, Jesus. But they are also under shepherds who lead others to the great shepherd, Jesus. And so we have this both and dynamic. And that is the key to healthy church leadership. Because if an elder forgets that they are of the flock, they start to become disconnected from their own need for the gospel. But if they forget they are over the flock, they start to fail to lead others in the gospel. And so we see that elders are mature Christians. They're called into service by the Holy Spirit. And they are of the flock and over the flock. And we see in this text what elders do. Firstly, elders guard the church. Look again at verse 28. I know that, they, that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise, distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. Elders guard and protect the church by guarding the truth of the gospel and the scriptures. Paul is saying that what is going to happen is that these wolves, these false teachers, are going to spread twisted things and they're going to attempt to draw people away from the faith. So in order to guard the truth, this is why it matters that elders do know their Bibles, that they're committed deeply into the gospel truth, and they're committed to sound doctrine. Elders guard the church. Secondly, elders lead the church. Notice the word in verse 28, overseers. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. This word overseers is using the Bible to speak about army captains, construction foremen, and city administrators. Think for a minute about these roles. You don't get into those roles without experience with boots on the ground. Like no one jumps into the position of army captain 
No, they come through the ranks. No one just walks onto a construction site and starts to take charge. No, they have to know construction. And no city administrator is appointed to the office without having a lot of background and experience in administration. Elders lead a church, and that leadership is based in a good track record of service in the church. So elders guard the church, elders lead the church, and finally, elders care for the church. Again, verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The word translated as shepherd in the Greek is pastor. Elders are to be pastors, shepherds of the church. And so what we learn is that the church is led by polarity of elders who guard, who lead, and who care for the church. So here's the question on this point about church leadership. How do you view church leaders? Do you view them with skepticism, cynicism, and mistrust? Or do you see church leaders as God's gracious provision to the church to guard, to lead, and to care for the church? Look, we can be honest about the world we live in. I know, you know, that there are church leaders all over the place who are corrupt. But let's not pretend that every church leader lives up to this ideal. But let's also recognize that corrupt church leaders isn't the Bible's fault. The Bible lays down a very clear and compelling vision for the kind of leader that God desires in his church. So maybe the call of this text Maybe the prophetic word of this text is, don't let the wolves make you cynical about good shepherds. And so I'll ask for your prayers. At Chapel Hill, we currently have two other elders, Nate and Ben. We pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to raise up many more elders. But right now, there is Nate, Ben, and I, and we ask that at the end of this service that you would pray for us. There are a number of challenges on how we are to guard, lead, and care for the church in this time of COVID. So I hope that you would pray for us as leaders of the church, and not only just our leaders, but to pray for the leaders in all other churches in our city who you might have personal connection with. Pray for the church leaders in our nation. Because if church is just a human institution, then church leaders are just self-interested people who want to have positions of power over others. But if it's true that the Holy Spirit of God really calls and equips servant leaders to lay down their lives for the church, well, that is a whole different kind of leadership. This is a beautiful vision of the kind of the leadership that our world currently needs, especially right now. So we've looked at the schedule of the church. We've looked at the structure of the church. Let's finally see the strength of the church. Let's look at verse 32. Now commit to you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. There is, in that verse, the strength of the church. God and the word of his grace. What is going to build up the church? It's God 
and the word of his grace. What is going to make our church healthy and vibrant, it's God and the word of his grace. That is the strength of the church. That is the mysterious power of the church. Institutions can thrive and they can fail. Culture and civilizations can rise and they can fall. But the church of Jesus Christ remains. Why? Because it's the people who are bought and redeemed by the Jesus and built up by the grace of his word. Friends, the church is you. The church is us whom Jesus has brought, bought us, possessed us, obtained us and drawn us to himself. That is what gives the church power and strength. How is it that we're going to have the strength and power to reach our city? It has nothing to do with our ability to institutionally build out something really good, but it has everything to do with God and the word of his grace to build us up, to give us strength and courage. So here is what it means to you. Whenever you gather with the people of God and come together to receive the grace of his word, you are strengthened. You, the church, are strengthened. So let's not underestimate the power of coming together on Sundays and gathering together in community groups around God's word. Let's hold heartedly be devoted to the schedule of the church, which is supported by the structures of the church, so that we might be strengthened by the word of his grace. So there is great encouragement this morning because it's not up to you, but it's up to God to build us up by the word of his grace. Let's pray that God will continue to do that. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Eutychus and the early disciples, that they had a posture of self-discipline and despite the inconveniences, they were devoted to gathering together on Sundays and many other times to be strengthened by the word of your grace. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will continue to raise up many more elders and leaders in our church. Elders and leaders who will continue to be servant leaders, who will guard, lead, and care for your people, Lord. Father, may we be renewed with the desire to not only fellowship, but to fellowship around your word. Father, thank you so much that it is you and the word of your grace that builds us up. And so may we come to your graces each day and especially on Sundays. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.